The Wake Knot by Robert McMinn Chapter 14 Tuesday Broken They were aware of two gallant ships bearing down on them with a strange knot embroidered on their sails. Charlie was feeling broken the following morning after a sleepless night with uniformed officers crawling all over the place and portable lights brought in to illuminate the pool area. She was awake but processing everything slowly. She had been involved in all-nighters and double shifts many times before, of course, but this was the first time involving a personal friend. As the sun came up across the fields and the front of the cottage was washed in golden light, she sat on the front step of the cottage and held her head in her hands. Chris was down at the pool area, again, telling one of the gendarmes, again, how he and Charlie had stumbled upon the unconscious Meg the night before. Although she wasn't within earshot of the conversation, Charlie knew they were asking him about the walk, about how Meg had said goodnight and gone up to the flat, how the stairway light had gone off but no other light had come on, and how they'd walked down the road and around the block, back up through the fields. The gendarmes, just doing their jobs, were making the whole event seem puzzling. And why was Megan sleeping in the flat that you, monsieur, had booked in your name? Had there been some kind of argument between the Mademoiselle Camar and Madame Stone? Why did she not accompany you on your walk? What made you cut across the field? At what time was it precisely when you left, came home, found her? Is it possible that she decided to go for a swim after you had left? In her pyjamas? In terms of the timeline, they were fairly solid. They knew that the sun had set, that the moon had risen. The times of these events were known could be looked up in an almanac. Charlie knew they were only talking to Chris again now because they wanted to see if there were any inconsistencies in their story. She also knew that there wouldn't be because neither of them was lying. Thinking about the mechanics of the police investigation allowed her to separate herself from the situation, to stand to one side and look at things dispassionately without feeling the guilt and pain. She had known Megan for about two years, not too long. She was a young and idealistic lawyer in the Crown Prosecution Service. Charlie had thought her unusual. Most young solicitors, straight out of university and freshly qualified, wanted to defend people against injustice. Megan just wanted justice to be done, and she wanted her cases against criminals she considered guilty to be completely airtight. She had a particular passion for stalking and harassment cases and tried to get as many successful prosecutions as possible. Charlie had found her one night, working long into the evening to track down a missing document, and had admired her determination and sense of humour. They had started to meet for the occasional lunch, or for a drink after work, though never during cases in which they were both involved. Megan had known about Charlie's marital problems and had been a good listener. Never foolish enough to offer advice or opinions while the marriage was falling apart, she had waited till Charlie filed for divorce before expressing the mild contention that Charlie might now be better off. Meg had let Charlie crash on her couch for a few weeks and when the divorce had come through and the money from the house, Charlie had suggested the holiday. Trouble always follows you around had been a standing joke between them for as long as they'd known each other 
This was definitely the worst holiday ever. She looked over at Chris, still talking to the gendarmes, apparently with endless reserves of patience. No doubt he too was feeling a bit fragile after a sleepless night, concerned at how upset Charlie was, concerned about Meg and wondering what he should do. Charlie wondered if she wanted him to move back into the flat and decided she didn't. None of this, whatever this was, had been his fault. Bill Morgan was standing in the doorway of their cottage, looking grim. The two children, she hoped, were still in bed. Paola had been talking loudly for hours about how she wanted now to go home, please, before she was murdered in her bed. But the gendarmes didn't want anybody to leave. Not yet. And what about you, Bill? Charlie thought. What do you know about what happened? She had seen, briefly, the inside of the flat before the gendarmes sealed it off. There was little sign of a struggle. The sofa bed was in the bed position and the duvet was half on the floor. A glass of water on the table near the bed had been knocked over. The water spilled but the glass not broken. That was it. No other signs of violence. It appeared Meg had been surprised in the flat and then somehow ended up down at the pool, unconscious in the water, in exactly the same way that Joshua had been. She had been wearing just her pyjama bottoms and a t-shirt. If Charlie and Chris hadn't stumbled through the bushes when they had, Meg would be dead. As it was, Charlie had performed mouth-to-mouth, breathing heavily into Meg's mouth a few times and then sitting back, turning Meg's head to the side to allow any water to drain away. After the second round of this, Meg had choked up pool water and gasped for breath. She was in hospital now, under intensive care, not out of the woods yet. She could still die from the inhaled water, if not supervised. She wasn't conscious and so had been unable, as yet, to tell them what had happened. It only occurred to them, as the ambulance pulled away, that they must have missed Meg's attacker by seconds. It had been so dark by then. Had they heard anything as they stumbled up through the trees in the dark? Had there been the sounds of a struggle, a cry or a blow? Had there been the sound of an unconscious body being dragged, a splash? Neither Charlie nor Chris could remember hearing anything. The gendarmes had refused to allow either of them to accompany Meg to the hospital. That had frustrated Charlie more than all the rest. The Morgans, meanwhile, claimed to have heard nothing. But it wasn't even that late. It was just after sunset, still early, on a summer evening. If Charlie were in charge, she'd be looking hard at the Morgans and their selective deafness. Did she believe Bill Morgan might be the assailant? Not really. She did think it possible that one of the Morgans had driven Chris off the road in pursuit of the trail bike but that was a whole other train of thought. There were, frankly, too many trains of thought. People were gathering up on the road, but the gendarmes weren't letting anybody come down, except here was Barb, plodding down, looking bombed out from sleep deprivation. The skin of her face was grey, and her hair was looking dishevelled. At the top of the slope was Christian, the restaurant owner, standing with a few other locals who must be experiencing the most dramatic week in the village's history. Why was Barb allowed down? 
Because, Charlie thought, I'm right and you own these properties, don't you, Bob? She was standing talking to Officer Serre, who had yet to speak to either Charlie or Chris, although he had given them both a long, appraising look when he first arrived. There were years of experience in that look. He was looking at us as if to say, You again? Really? Chris was walking up the garden, showing the whites of his eyes. She could tell the discussion he'd just been involved in had driven him to the limit. How many times were they going to keep asking the same questions? He stopped, about three metres away, and hesitated. She lifted her head and beckoned him over, with a nod. He pulled out one of the patio chairs and sat nearer, hands on his knees, leaning forward so they could speak without being overheard. I'm not going to ask you how you feel, he said, because it's written all over your face. We need sleep, I think, and when will they let us? Serre is here now, look, she said, barely moving her head, too tired to do anything more than vaguely look towards the senior officer. He'll take over and get everything settled down. He'll want to speak to us later today and he'll want to ask us all the same questions we've been answering all night, but he'll want to talk to the troops first to see what they all think. Chris hesitated. Um, yes, I would like you to stay with me. You're the one good thing to come out of this god-awful holiday, she said, before he could ask. Should we ask if we can go and get some kip, or do you want to try and see Meg first? They won't let us yet, not until Serres questioned us. I'll ask in a minute, she said, not moving, too tired to move, perhaps, ever again. What's Barb doing here? Getting closer and closer to admitting that she owns the place, I should think, Charlie said. Help me up. She reached out a hand, and Chris took it gently with his good hand and pulled her to her feet. She brushed herself down and walked stiffly over to Serre, who held up a hand to the officer he was talking to, in order to give Charlie his full attention. My friend and I have been up all night, Charlie said. We've answered a lot of questions. I'm sure you have more, but... Can we answer them later? We would both like to sleep. Serre looked at her, his black eyes narrowing over his prominent nose. Was that sympathy in his eyes or boredom? As usual, he took his sweet time answering. Charlie knew what he was doing, had played this game herself, but was just finding it especially irritating this morning. Finally, he said... I'm sorry about your friend. I will speak to you this afternoon, maybe? After lunch? I will send a car to pick you both up. Is that enough time for you to sleep? Thank you, said Charlie, and walked back to Chris. We've got till around two, she said to him. Uh, let's get inside and pull the curtains and then pull the covers over our heads. They stepped into the cottage, locking the door behind them and then both went through the bedtime routine, though it was six in the morning. The bedroom on the first floor was always shuttered because it faced onto the road outside. With the door closed, it was actually fairly dark. They got into bed, and Charlie got as close to Chris as possible, given that his arm was still in the sling. It was comforting to feel his warmth against her body, and she fell asleep with her lips touching his skin. She was barely able to savour the sweet relief of being able to sleep after the night they'd had before losing consciousness. When she woke a few hours later, she had a dislocating feeling of devastation without remembering why. Opening her eyes, 
she stared into the grey light of the bedroom and couldn't move, as if a weight was on her chest. She looked over at Chris, who was managing to sleep better now even on his back, and then the fact of Meg's near death hit her. And then another thought, that in all the hours of shock and aftershock, it hadn't occurred to her, nor apparently to anyone else. She sat up in bed, waking Chris. He looked at her, rattled. What's up? Why didn't the pool alarm go off? Was the key on the plate? No, was it? I don't know. Surely they would have looked at that. You're right, though. Why didn't we think of it? Because we were dealing with the fact of our friend lying face down in the pool. They did ask if I thought she would have wanted a late night swim, Chris said. Me too, and I said, no way, but it hadn't occurred to me that the key might be on the plate. So, does that make it an accident, after all? No, but it means that the attacker either had the means to disable the pool alarm, or they knew to take the key down with them. Oh. Oh. So you mean... Charlie was up and getting dressed. I mean that the attacker is familiar with this house and it's... She waved her hand vaguely around her head. It's systems. Chapter 15. Interviews. He had disappointed, deceived his men. He had drawn them into a snare. Charlie was hopping from foot to foot in agitation, waiting for the car to pick them up for the interview at two. It was obvious she was keen to get to it, to get on with it. Chris was more ambivalent, though he was pleased to see her able to focus on something other than shock and dismay for a while. Meg had made a joke, not funny in retrospect, of trouble following Charlie around. He also felt that it was following him. He had been interviewed by the police after the head teacher's death. After a while, it had seemed as if they were just punishing him, laying on the guilt. They knew it was suicide. They just wanted to see the journalists squirm. He had given them what they wanted, hadn't he? Hadn't bothered trying to defend himself. Didn't point out that the readers who eagerly clicked on such stories were also culpable. Now, here he was, about to be interviewed by police, gendarmes, for the third time in a week. Charlie was adamant that the swimming pool alarm was the key to the case. He could see why she thought this. When they'd emerged into daylight after sleeping through the morning, there had been nobody around to ask about the alarm key. Chris had suggested they go to ask Barb but they'd thought better off it. Maybe Barb, like them, would be trying to catch up on sleep. The Morgans were nowhere to be seen, however, their car gone. Chris wondered if they would be back, or perhaps if they were already being interviewed at the gendarmerie. They were standing at the top of the sloped driveway at the side of the road. The village was as quiet as ever, the weather still warm, but with a lot more cloud cover than the previous couple of days. As usual, there was nobody around and Chris started to wonder how many of the shuttered houses were actually occupied. Every day, the village showed this blank face to the world. The occasional car passed through, but there was rarely evidence of occupation. The biggest crowd had been on the day the doctor's body had been discovered in the church. 
This was the problem of a dormitory community without even so much as a dépôt de pain. Anyone who lived here had to drive to Vertayac or Ribarac for a pint of milk or a baguette. I've been thinking we ought to leave, he said. It was bad enough when they found Celia. Charlie looked sideways at him. Can't say I disagree, she said, though I doubt the gendarmes will want us to leave just yet. And I need to see Meg. What more use are we to them after today? Probably none. Still, here they are. A blue Renault was driving slowly towards them from the direction of Riberac. It performed a turn in the road and then stopped beside them. A uniformed officer got out of the passenger side and opened the rear door, inviting them to get in. Charlie went first. Nobody said anything on the drive to Riberac. Chris felt increasingly nervous. Charlie started to look stricken again, the excitement of having a theory beginning to wear away, perhaps. Chris reached across and took her hand. The depressing building they were taken to was part of a barracks-like complex on the edge of Ribarac. A sign on the wall said Gendarmerie Nationale and a limp French flag hung from a pole atop one of the low squat buildings. Gérard Serret met them in the main entrance and shook their hands. He was wearing the same rumpled suit with a blue shirt instead of the white one he'd been wearing earlier. He looked at Chris and indicated with his hand a hard bench in the lobby. Uh, you will wait here, please, he said. Chris had no choice. Serret led Charlie away. So they were to be interviewed separately. Again. It made sense, though it made him feel uncomfortable which was in keeping with the hard bench, which was impossible to sit on for long. He stood up and paced around. After ten minutes or so, a woman in civilian clothes came through from an inner office and offered him coffee. He decided to take one just to have something to do. Sitting back on the bench again with the coffee next to him, he pulled out his phone and started playing a game, badly, with his supposedly good right hand. After another ten minutes or so, a uniformed officer came into the lobby with an ink pad and a fingerprinting kit. He said in halting English that they needed Chris's prints in order to exclude him from their analysis of those found at the scene. Chris nervously allowed the prints of his right hand to be taken, but the officer hesitated over the left hand, which was still supported in a sling. But Chris was no longer in too much pain, so removed the arm carefully from the sling and gingerly held it out to be inked. He was then shown to the toilet where he washed the ink off his hands. By the time he was finished, his shoulder was hurting again. When he emerged from the toilet, somewhat white in the face from the pain, the uniformed officer was still there. Now, with an apologetic shrug, he held out two long, toothed cotton swabs which he used to take samples from the inside of Chris's cheeks. Chris now felt nervous. Even knowing he had done nothing wrong, he got the fear that he would somehow end up being framed for this crime. At the same time, he wanted to cooperate because he didn't want the person who had apparently attacked Meg to get away with it. In truth, he was still in shock and just going along with everything, not thinking too much at all. He went to sit down on the bench with his eyes closed, waiting for the throbbing pain in his shoulder to subside. His prescription painkillers had run out and he was now restricted to paracetamol, an ibuprofen 
and he had none with him. After another half an hour or so, Charlie and Serret emerged through a double door. Charlie came over to him and said, They won't take as long with you, I don't think. We've got lots to talk about later. She looked at him with a secret twist to her mouth and a raised eyebrow. Serret was still waiting by the double doors, holding one open with his back. Chris got to his feet and strolled over. Monsieur, said Serret, leading the way towards an interview room, my apologies for keeping you waiting. I believe Madame Stone has told us as much as we needed, but I'll ask you a few of the same questions just to be sure. We will uh, record for the benefit of the procureur. Who's that? asked Chris. Uh, it is the person in our system who has a role uh, equivalent to that of your friend, said Serre with some sadness. Chris wasn't sure if by your friend he meant Charlie or Megan, so he was none the wiser. Until we have a suspect, we don't know who will be assigned to the case. Chris nodded that he understood. Serre invited him to sit in a chair opposite his desk and took his own seat behind the desk. His first question surprised Chris. What is your theory of the case? I beg your pardon? You are a journalist, a writer? Well, I was, yes. So you must have been thinking about this case. I'm not sure it all ties together. The murder of the doctor, the car knocking me off my bike, and Meg's accident? Or assault? I'm not sure one theory fits it all. Uh, but if it did... For whatever motive, someone killed Dr Patel. There was a witness, the kid on the trail bike. They gave chase, knocked me off the bike and caught the kid. Or he's in hiding. Then, I don't know why they attacked Meg. I can't make that fit. She was uh, sleeping in the flat. I don't know that she was sleeping... It was still early. She said she was going to read. But when you left her, you thought she was in the flat. We saw her go upstairs. Serre looked at him for a long time. But you were supposed to be in the flat, yes? Chris swallowed down hard. Serre had just presented a new picture to him, one he didn't want to think about. I was originally booked into the flat, yes? Uh, this was a holiday you booked online? Actually, no, I didn't book it. A colleague of mine was unavoidably detained and offered me the booking. Serre flipped a page of his notebook, took up a pen. Who was this person, please, the person who booked the holiday? Chris felt a lump in his throat and broke out in a flop sweat. The Colleague, I mean to say, this person, the one who booked, was not a close friend. Their name, S Stephen Hopkins. And how long had you known this person? Chris pressed his lips together, the weft of his thoughts unravelling, his world view crumbling. Not long, he almost whispered, only since. Since the uh, story I was working on, ended in a death. A death. Chris wiped the sweat off his forehead with his hand. He wondered if he looked guilty to Serre. Checked himself. Of course he looked guilty. 
But it wasn't guilt he was feeling, it was shame, embarrassment. He told the story of Alison Hayes and the touch rugby game and his pursuit of David Merriweather, and from the story emerged the detail that Stephen Hopkins had approached him with sympathy after his sweaty, boozy appearance on Newsnight had stood him drinks in the coach and horses when he was drowning his sorrows and had eventually offered him a holiday. Stephen Hopkins then booked the flat at L'Hermitage and then offered you the weeks because he said he couldn't go. Right. Chris was reduced to monosyllables. He noticed that Serre had more or less lost his heavy accent when speaking English. Cunning bastard. And as this was a man you met in a London pub, the, uh, glancing down, coach and horses. Right. And he claimed to have been with you outside the house of the head teacher? Yes. And did you recognise him? No. But you were too polite to say. Drunk? I was too drunk to say. He stood me a lot of drinks. A long silence. This interview wasn't so quick, after all. And would you uh, recognise this man again if you saw him? Yes, but you have not, in fact, seen him. No. Silence again. Chris heard the clock ticking behind him. He wondered what Charlie was doing. Sere returned to his immediate concerns. I will ask you to describe this man to an officer who will try to create a composite image. Chris nodded. Serre continued. You took the holiday that was offered then in the apartment at L'Hermitage, but you swapped when you and Madame Stone became lovers? Or was this always a plan? Were the three of you friends before? Before? Did you know each other in England before you stay in Lusignac? Oh, no. But within a few days of meeting, you arranged for Mademoiselle Camel to swap with you? Why was that even necessary? Weren't there two bedrooms in the cottage? Chris paused. What are you driving at exactly? Serre changed tack. I have already spoken to Madame Stone about this, of course. Of course. I was just puzzled. Uh, consider for a moment that the killer or killers wanted to deal with a cyclist who was in their way who might have seen their car. But how would they know where I was staying? It's a small community. People talk. Uh, they already killed one of the residents, perhaps. So then you're saying they were looking for me on Monday night? Why then? It takes time to get information. They may have been aware you were talking to us, beginning to remember details. Are you saying someone under your command might have leaked the information? Information circulates in small communities. I have an open mind. So they were looking for me? But then why attack Meg when they realised I'm not there? Because they were there, because she saw them. Chris let it all sink in. Jesus. It sank in some more. But that means... Are you thinking the killer or killers might return to finish the job, yes? 
Do you think there's a chance of that? This, of course, is just one possibility, but this had not occurred to you? No. The late, I mean, the only... He didn't know where to begin. He felt foolish to even utter the thoughts aloud. Were the gendarmes about to offer protection? Please, said Saray with an encouraging and sympathetic look that Chris definitely didn't feel he deserved. Well, just before, I mean, the last time we saw Meg, we were all talking about the Morgan family, their car, which is the right sort of car, so we were looking around the front of his car for damage. And did you find any? Serre had clearly heard this theory before and was completely unfazed by it. Not really, it was getting dark. Chris tailed off, realising how lame this all sounded, spoken aloud. Well, it was an interesting theory, perhaps, but the Morgans have photographic evidence of where they were that Wednesday afternoon and they would surely not have made the mistake of killing Mademoiselle Camel which leaves us where we were. What about the pool key? Yes, that is interesting, said Sire. It seems clear that Mademoiselle Camel was somehow drawn from the flat, but when she was thrown in the pool, someone disabled the alarm with the key from the flat, so whoever did it knew to do that. It were, It's a puzzle. Were there fingerprints on the key? Ah, yes, we will be comparing the fingerprints of the residents with those we found, but I don't think we'll find anything. Many different people have used these keys. DNA analysis may be more fruitful, but these things take time. You've got my DNA and my fingerprints, said Chris. Yes, thank you for your assistance. Will these things be destroyed at the conclusion of the case? The idea that his data might be kept forever disturbed him. We only keep information for people who are suspected or convicted of crimes. Suspected? For how long? This was alarming. What if they decided to make him a suspect for a day? For 25 years? Don't be concerned, monsieur. You are not a suspect in this case. In fact, you were the victim of a hit-and-run incident. You have merely provided us with samples we can use to compare... With any stranger samples we find at the scene or on the victim's body. He stood up, drawing the interview to a close. Chris couldn't now object to his skin samples being used in the investigation, but might have refused them if he knew about the 25 years. Then again, if he had refused, all they had to do was declare him a suspect. Then there was the question of the danger he and Charlie might be in, if these people might come back, he said. But Serre was already leaving the room, apparently not hearing them. He followed Serre back to the lobby, where Charlie was waiting, standing, having clearly given up on sitting on the hard bench. She looked bright-eyed and excited, as if she had some news she was eager to share. Serre said he'd be in touch about the composite image when a technician was available. Chris walked gloomily over to her and said in a low voice, Did they take your fingerprints and DNA? Yes, don't worry, it's just routine, she smiled. Not for me it isn't, he said. Her smile vanished. Did Serre mention that we might still be in danger? She frowned. 
Not in so many words, no, she said, but he did say they didn't have the manpower to watch us 24-7. So what do we do? Charlie waited until they were in the car on the way back to the hermitage before asking him what was wrong. Chris just shook his head and muttered, I've been a fool. He couldn't bring himself to tell her how just yet. Let her respect me for just a little bit longer, he thought. Instead, mindful of his throbbing shoulder, he asked Charlie if she had any painkillers in her bag. She didn't. So they asked the driver, who was the officer who had taken the DNA swabs, to take them to a pharmacy. Chris mimed that his shoulder was hurting after the fingerprinting. The gendarme had the grace to look slightly guilty and waited in the car while they bought pain relief in the pharmacy. Back at the hermitage, the Morgans were still gone. They looked bleakly at Meg's car sitting in the parking area before going inside to get ready to visit her at the hospital. <laughs> 